It's time for us to do something. Good evening and welcome to Pello Talk. A slightly strange evening for today. It is live streaming and we do have all of your comments available to be put up on the board as we uh, on the board on the screen uh, as as we go through this this evening. However, we're actually pre-recording the conversation, and uh, that's because it's uh, one of my kids' birthdays tonight, and uh, it's possible for me to be with them, and so that's the right thing to do. So thank you to uh, the guests for uh, coming on early today, and uh, please do remember your live comments are being put on the screen. Um, by our great producer who's volunteering uh, tonight and um, we would love for you to be part of that conversation so uh, please do share this um, live stream to your Facebook group to your Twitter or, or whatever social media you prefer and then jump into the conversation you can join the conversation through the live stream where you're watching it on either Facebook or YouTube and uh, a big welcome to the panel this afternoon and uh, joining me we have Professor David Flint uh, Graham Young and Joel Jamal. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure, Dave. Pleasure to be here. Now, one of the things that I want to spend most of the show talking about tonight uh, is the immense level of frustration that Daniel Andrews is leaving in his wake uh, as he's unveiled this roadmap out, which seems more to be of a toddler scribbling than a roadmap to anywhere um, with not a lot of coherence or, or hope for the average Victorian. Uh, there's no punches pulled there. It's, it's very, very accurate because there's a whole lot of frustration there. And this frustration is with, <laughs> I mean, hopefully the viewers to this program are not new to the conversation we've been having um, and many in conservative media have been having, uh, finally, uh, about the the gross tyranny of the deprivation of liberty that's going on around Australia, but nowhere worse than in Victoria, where they're still locked in their houses, not allowed to um, go in more than five kilometres from their home, and just extraordinary havoc being wrecked, uh, not only on the economy, but on every life that's affected by the economy, which is pretty much every single Victorian. Uh, and so the bulk of today's conversation uh, is going to be about what can we do? What can Victorians do to um, to respond to this? And uh, I guess we're talking about lawful ones as well as civil disobedience. It's an option that has to be critically weighed uh, for its effectiveness and, and viability and consequences. Uh, but then what, to what options aren't on the table which we should seek to get on the table. Um, so this is going to be a great conversation, and the major objective I want to cover tonight is the concept of recall elections. But that's a sneak peek. We'll get there in uh, just a little while. Uh, Graham, why don't you start by summarising uh, the damage and the frustration that's going on in Victoria at the moment. Uh, your organisation has put together a letter with a lot of uh, eminent experts uh, expressing their concerns about the, the cost, the health cost, the human cost, the mortal cost of prolonged lockdowns. Um, Graham Young. Yeah, look, I haven't paid specific attention to Victoria 
Um, I've looked more at the wider situation in Australia and the cost that's being imposed on the community to save people from dying of COVID is many times larger uh, than the, uh, the value of the, the lives being saved. And I don't want to sound callous in that, but it's not a question of saving lives on one hand and losing them on the other. Whichever way you go, people are going to die, people are going to suffer. Um, and um, j just one illustration of that day, which has come up since we did our letter, and it's the Parliamentary Budget Office has estimated that by 2030, our Australian government debt will be $800 billion larger than it would otherwise be. So you can take that $800 billion as a measure of the cost just for government. It's not the cost to private businesses, to private individuals. It's not the cost to states. It's the cost to the federal budget. Wow. Um, when I work that out per life saved, it works out to be about $13 million. Now, you can do a lot with $13 million in terms of medicine, in terms of health care, in terms of raising living standards. If the government was to spend all that $800 billion on hospitals, you could get 444 Gold Coast hospitals. It costs $1.8 wow. for the Gold Coast hospital. Um, you know, Labor voters are always going on about we need more health, we need more doctors, mm. uh, we need more, more teachers. Well, just imagine, you know, $800 million is, I think, off the top of my head, about twice the federal budget. So it is just a huge amount of money. Mm. Um, so, so that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that there are a lot of people who are going to suffer financially as a result of this. And one of the things that happens when you're poorer is that you live longer, uh, you live shorter rather. Mm. Uh, and, and that's for a number of reasons. Partly it's because you can't afford good nutrition or as good a nutrition as other people. But it's also that you can't afford to see doctors and have the uh, sort of medical care that other richer people can have. Now, you know, there's limits to um, how much extra mortality it creates, but it does create extra mortality. Um, we know that there are people suiciding. I was fascinated to see the other day that the Victorian coroner uh, claimed that there hadn't been an increase in suicides there. But on the other hand, you've got people like Patrick McGorry uh, saying that look, calls to suicide helplines are up 20, 30%. Um, mm. We know from the past that there is a relationship between economic depression and suicide. Um, so it's, it's unimaginable to me that there aren't people who are dying uh, because they've lost power, because they put their life savings into a business, for example, and yep. now they can't, uh, they can't pay the bills. In fact, we had a, a footballer, or sorry, a cricket coach up here committed suicide two or three days ago. His wife was a manager with Flight Centre. Well, there's not a lot of future in that at the moment. Uh, and his, his uh, livelihood had also been influenced by the pandemic. She's got triplets on the way. That poor so he, family. He died right at the stage when the family needed him the most. That's going to have a bad effect, not just him, him obviously. That was mm. terminal for him, unfortunately. But for, for that wife, she's now under tremendous stress. And those yeah. kids will be under tremendous stress. That's just one example. So, yep. so there's a huge amount of, of cost here. Uh, it's not an easy thing, though, to say, well, this is where it evens out and that's the right point to be at. Uh, but I think it's pretty easy to say that Daniel Andrews is applying the most draconian conditions 
in the world. Yep. Uh, even someone pointed out more draconian than in Wuhan in the first place. Um, so the cost there has got to be higher and more unnecessary than anywhere else. Yeah, abso- absolutely. Uh, it would be hard to overstate uh, the impact of, of what's going on, and and there's so many, so many aspects and facets that are well beyond mere financial. It would it would be silly for anybody to think that the critics of lockdown are only concerned about uh, financial impacts. Um, Professor Flint, uh, one of the suggestions that I've seen is that perhaps Scott Morrison uh, should intervene in the tyranny going on in Victoria. As a constitutional law professor, uh, what rights does the Prime Minister have to intervene uh, when a state Victor- a state Premier is uh, so abusing our God-given freedoms? Well, the Prime Minister has more powers than he should have. The federal government has more powers than it should have. It has put itself in the position with the help of the High Court over about a hundred years of doing something which doesn't exist in any other comparable federation. That is, it completely dominates the fiscal situation in Australia. I think the Commonwealth now collects about 80% of the taxes in Australia and hands back about 40% on various conditions. And it would be open to the Prime Minister. I don't think it's right. But it would be open for the Prime Minister to use that fiscal power. He may need legislation to help him in some respects, but he could impose very strong fiscal constraints on Victoria to require them to do what he wants them to do. In fact, the Prime Minister could take much more of a powerful position than he has, for example, in relation to the border closures, which are causing serious problems across Australia, none of which can be justified on medical grounds. You you can't justify the closing of the whole state for the purpose of this virus. It's being done in Queensland and Western Australia, obviously for electoral reasons. It may have some passing popularity among people who don't think deeply about these things, but it's certainly not what should be happening in Australia. And it would be open to the Prime Minister to seek urgent action on this by the High Court, but he pulled out of the case that Clive Palmer brought in relation to Western Australia, obviously, to because of some arrangement with the West Australian government. And uh, he shows no interest in relation to the Queensland border. So I don't expect him to be using such uh, circular powers that he has. In addition, he has, again, because of the High Court, considerable powers in relation to treaties. And he could claim that international health treaties give him the power to legislate with respect to Victoria. He would have to call the parliament together and legislate to control Victoria. He shows absolutely no inclination to do that. In fact, the prime minister, as with every other premier, I think is part of the problem. The whole national cabinet consists of people who have completely, I think, misunderstand their role, misjudge the situation. When the situation arose by by March, in my view, they should have not uh, done what uh, they are now programmed to do. 
the problem with all of the uh, members of the national cabinet and most politicians is that they have now decided that they are programmed to react not to evidence. They all wish to react to computer programming. <laughs> and as the George Box, who was probably the greatest statistician of the 20th century, Anglo-American said, all modeling, all modeling is wrong, but it's all useful. It's rather like all opinion polls. Most opinion polls are wrong, but they're useful. The same with most modeling, it's, uh, it, it can be useful. But they chose, they idiotically chose, as did a number of other countries, to follow Imperial College and Washington State University, both of which, particularly Imperial College, mm. had a record of uh, producing over the years, exaggerating modeling, not just modeling, which is as bad as that in relation to global warming, but much more seriously wrong modeling in relation to diseases. Mm. And we heard in Australia... I've actually seen uh, commenters, qualified commentary on that from similarly qualified people uh, as, as that which produced that modeling, describing it as not fit for purpose. <laughs> well, I think that would be so. And it's it's a tool, but to to treat it as the truth. Uh, I mean, you have politicians, for example, Mr. Biden in America and uh, Senator Wong, they talk about the science, <coughs> the science, as though there's mm. one juggernaut of science mm. which tells you immediately <laughs> what to do. And, of course, it's not at all like that. Correct. Scientists yeah. disagree too, and but, but I think I think they're all they're all in the wrong. They they should never have agreed on a lockdown. They should have looked at world's best practice. But uh, the Victorian Premier is the absolutely worst of the lot because he's dragging it out because of his own serious errors. And he he, he misbehaved appallingly over the quarantine, as we know. Mm. And now he's uh, he's he's landing the result of that on the Victorian people. And there's yeah. an over terrible overreaction in relation to this virus. Yeah. So, uh, but you you ask what what the prime minister can do. He could do more, but he won't. I don't think. Yep. Joel, uh, we've heard it described, um, I think, without hyperbole, that uh, the lockdown in Victoria is the worst in the world. Uh, it's even worse than being in Wuhan, where they were welding the doors shut and barricading people into, into their apartment blocks. Now, Dan hasn't done that yet, uh, but if the Prime Minister could step in, uh, another very important question uh, relating to the purpose of federation as we understand it, although that understanding is now quite uh, diminished in, in its commonality, um, should the Prime Minister step in? Look, my fellow panellists paint a very stark uh, image of what's been happening in Victoria. I mean, the economic impacts are incredible. And the good professor points out that the level of overreach that we've seen from the government on a number of different areas completely bastardized the constitution. I mean, we are, no, we are far beyond what our forefathers intended when they wrote our constitution and commonwealth. I mean, for me to, and this, this is the problem, the, the uh, I'm I'm not a fascist. I I'm, I describe myself as a Christian conservative. I believe in moral capitalism, but the the little fascist voice in me says Scott Morrison should do this. 
he should he should be the strong man and he should completely overhaul the Victorian government. They had no right to do X, Y, and Z, including the Belt and Road Initiative. It's unconstitutional. But the conservative in me says that is very short-sighted and that only achieves my long-term goals. And I don't want other parties to have that power in the future. In fact, that's how things got so bad. So I've got to be honest with you, Dave. You know, young people, they're usually um, they're usually in a, in a position where they're optimistic. I'm not optimistic. I, I don't see how we chart us our way out of this. But the most powerful thing that I can see happening through this, because I don't think I don't think Scott Morrison has the stomach to do anything. I really don't. Um, I, I call him Silent Scott because he, you know, he was elected by Quiet Australia to not be silent. But he he's been yep. everything but that recently. Now look, this there was something encouraging I've been seeing the last couple of days, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this from the panel. We've seen over ten, fifteen thousand people out on the streets around Australia. I think we saw four, five thousand in um, Adelaide, five thousand in uh, in Queensland around the place. A few, th- I think about one thousand maybe in Victoria, and one thousand in Sydney. Now. I saw a very big shift from the government and the conservative media once they saw people out there and mm. speaking. I noticed Scott Morrison pivot, mm. and I get the feeling that Dan Andrews' days are numbered. However, it highlights... That is optimistic. It, <laughs> I don't know what you were saying. You weren't optimistic before. I'm not optimistic about the, the bastardization of the Constitution, how far it's gone. Dan Andrews is just a placeholder for now. There will always be another Dan Andrews. I don't see the system changing, and the system is the problem right now. I don't want any more um, constitutional overreach, but I have a feeling that that's what we're going to need to get out of this mess. But I look, one thing the progressives have right is the constitutions we have in a lot of our Anglosphere countries, they're incompatible right now they, they got us very far for a long time but they have not been able to deal with the technological advancements and the government overreach and i think it's time for an update which is widely sort of uh, consulted by the community we need to bring the best ideas to the forefront not from people who have been politics in politics their whole lives from people from average people out there now this leaves the door open to socialism and communism but just as the, the founding of America and their founding document, it was average people, well-educated people that came out and they all had their say. Not what's happening now. We've got a, we've got a, there, is a, there is a revolution going on around the world from the left and the right. They're not happy with their constitution. No one is happy with it. And I think it shows the colliding of these worlds due to technology. There's greater information out there, just like with the Gutenberg printing press. And as a result, the curtain has been ripped. We are seeing how disgusting the swamp is in every political city around the world, whether it's 10 Downing Street in the UK, whether it's Washington in the US, and whether it's Canberra in Australia. And we're going to need very educated people like the professor himself pointing this out. And on top of that, we're going to need people like Graham, my fellow panellist, who is pointing out the dangers of terrible parts. Now, if you don't mind me saying, Dave, there have been some very terrible this, – this is, this is going to go down in history as one of the worst health, managed health crises ever in this 21st century. The level of information and capability we have to mm. botch it 
how we have is insane. I mean, Graham touched on suicides. I'm a part of one million Australians who lost their job. I mean, I'm young, I'm educated, I've got a degree under my arm. There's no reason why I shouldn't have a job right now except by my own choices. But that's not the case. The government completely botched this thing. In fact, I would argue that it's undeniable that the lockdown is worse than the virus itself. I mean, a study out of the UK, and this is the last thing I'll end on, a study, a study in the UK found that due to people missing their medical checkups and not detecting cancer early, 35,000 people will die because of the lockdown they had earlier this year. And that's assuming mm. there's no more lockdowns. How much is it in Australia? It's about half that if we're going to be yep. rough. But look, that's what I'll add, Dave. Thank you, Joel. Uh, Graham, uh, next question will be for you to uh, lead us a little bit further on. Um, we, we've had uh, Professor David Flint tell us a little bit about Scott Morrison's options um, and, uh, and Joel, Jamal, tell us a little bit about the, the oughts of, uh, of Federation and the, and the Commonwealth Constitution. Uh, but what about the Victorian Constitution? What's the options for the Governor of Victoria? Um, if you could speak to, to both the, the possibilities and the merits of, of any options that he may or, or may in fact not have right now. Um, well, I wouldn't have thought he had many options at all. Uh, the government's not acting illegally. Um, it uh, has done some things which I think are undemocratic, but it's done it uh, arguably through a democratic process of getting legislation through both houses of parliament. So I, I would think that the governor, and in fact I would hope, that he's sitting there with hands tied. Um, just listening to the previous discussion, I agree with David that the Prime Minister's got more options than he ought to have. Um, and on the basis of that, I don't think he ought to use a lot of them. I think one of the problems with our federation is that when something goes wrong in a state, we look to the federal government mm. to bail the state out. So what that leads to is... We've just lost you for the moment. <clears throat> You've frozen on uh, what that leads us to. Can I come in on that, uh, Dan? Yeah, Graham, we'll come back to you. Sorry and, about uh, that. See if we see if oh, yeah, is your uh, you rectified now? Okay. Um, Hello. Yep. yep. Uh, Can you hear us? We'll you actually just yes, but the same. Let's just give it a minute or two to uh, recover a little bit better and stabilise. And in the meantime, we'll let uh, David jump in with uh, oh. what he what he has. Sorry, I'm back. Professor Flint, what did you have to add oh, to that? All I wanted to add is that the Victorians, like the people of every other state who had it, got rid. Well, they didn't get rid of it. It was the political parties, by a consensus, got rid of the power of the upper house. Now, the present upper house wouldn't exercise the power. We saw how foolishly they acted in relation to the extension of the state of emergency. But there was a power there in the upper house which was used on a number of occasions in Victoria. Victoria had more occasions of this than any other part of the Commonwealth, and that was the power of the upper house, to use the power to withhold supply, to force a government to an election. It, was, it took place on a number of occasions in Victoria, but was done away with in mm. 2005. The chances of a governor acting in relation to possibly illegal activity. There's some aspects which 
if not illegal, at least unlawful, I suspect. But uh, the, the likelihood of a governor doing this, I, I think, is pretty minimal, particularly the present governor. I don't think she would be inclined to that. Uh, the last time was, of course, in New South Wales, when the land government was dismissed by, the, by Philip Gain because they, he was acting illegally. In fact, he, he should have been paying money to the bondholders, and he wasn't. In fact, he, he, to avoid a federal garnishee, because the, the money was, had been handed over to the Commonwealth to pay to the bondholders, some of whom were overseas, he went to the state bank in Sydney in his chauffeur-driven car, withdrew all the money from the accounts and took <laughs> the money round to the trades hall where the money was kept for the rest of the period. The, the governor warned him a few times and eventually dismissed him. Uh, <laughs> Whitlam, the good old days. Yes, Whitlam behaved unlawfully in that Whitlam knew. Whitlam knew that once supply was withheld and he couldn't deliver supply, he should have resigned. And eventually the governor general moved in and withdrew his commission. So there, yeah. there, there's an example of unlawful activity. The Premier of Victoria is probably, or the ministers are probably acting unlawfully in terms of the decision, recent decision concerning the export cattle ban in Queensland under the uh, under a few governments, the last Labour government, the Gillard government. Only recently that reached the courts. That shows how long these things take. Mm. But the judge found that the subordinate legislation which was being exercised by the minister was was beyond what he should have been doing that he should have been exercising the power to control exports just to control that part of exports which were questionable and going to dangerous risky abattoirs in indonesia he had a flat ban and the the judge mm. in the federal court found that that was going too far because you have a common right to conduct business now yes. I suspect that a lot of these a lot of these decisions taken in the national cabinet are then given effect by a minister in a state government. They don't even have the decency these days that these silly politicians, instead of handing it over to the executive council, where at least there's some verification by the governor, they've given the power to make delegated legislation in the hands of a minister. A lot of these ministers have absolutely no background. They've never mm. had a real job. And they, they take decisions which are far beyond what is necessary. Yep. And, Let's and come back to Graham. I think a lot of these are probably unlawful on examination. Graham, you were, uh, you were saying what these are going to lead to. Um, well, what I was working up to was to say that democracy's actually been pretty resilient um, and that, you know, it might actually be in the best interest of everyone, painful though it will be, to let things play out in the normal course of events in Victoria. Um, you know, the last time you got a good government in Victoria it was because of the meltdown under Kane and, um, and then Kerner, although she was really an accessory rather than the... Uh, the principle, uh, and that gave you Jeff Kennett because people actually understand when things are going badly and they will take uh, steps that they wouldn't otherwise take. So, so that's, that's one issue. Uh, another issue is um, if the 
federal government were to step in, uh, or if the governor were to step in, there would be a very strong body of opinion that said they were acting unlawfully. I'm not saying correct opinion, but just a very strong body. Sure. Um, and, and that would set up a really strong partisan argument. And mm. we've, we've obliquely referred to, or well, no, directly, David referred to the 1975, the Smith I think if Malcolm Fraser had had his time over again, he might not have blocked supply. Um, they might not have tried to, um, well, they forced a double dissolution halfway through the, the three-year term of Whitlam, because if they hadn't done all of that, the government would have turned over naturally. Uh, Fraser still would have got a huge majority, but he wouldn't have had this thing hanging over his head, the idea that what he'd done was illegitimate and that his wasn't a legitimate government. I think that that actually crimped his wings. So, you know, when you look at Victoria, um, it's not just Victorians who are suffering. You know, it's the second largest economy in the country. So everyone is suffering as a result of it, but Victorians more than others. I think if you want to get good government down there, you probably have to wait the, what is it, two and a half years now to the, uh, something like that, the, mm. the next election, and let the electors take their revenge out against Daniel Andrews. Graham, what do you Absolutely. think about the uh, the possibility of uh, Victorians um, voting with their feet in the meantime and doing that wonderful option available in a competitive federation of leaving the state that doesn't come close to making them happy, taking their business, taking their real estate investment and uh, transporting it? Easier than it sounds, but is it harder than continuing to live under dictator Dan with no guarantee that uh, the good people of Victoria will be good enough uh, at the next election? I'm sure there will be a lot of that happening. Um, there are a lot of people whose livelihoods don't depend on being in one place, people who are retired, people who are on, um, on welfare, um, and places like uh, Queensland have... Um, uh, balmier temperatures, you live a little bit longer up here. Um, you can uh, sell a uh, modest house in uh, in Melbourne and buy a magnificent house in Brisbane for uh, the same money and have some change left over. And there's precedent for it. Back in um, 1970-something, I think it was, or maybe the early 80s, David can correct me on the date if I'm wrong, uh, Joe Bielke-Peterson uh, abolished uh, death duties up here. And that was largely responsible for the growth of the Gold Coast and, to a lesser extent, the Sunshine Coast. And a lot of Victorians who were uh, closer um, to um, going on to the next world than most of us moved up here so they could pass most of what they'd uh, amassed in this world to their um, their heirs and descendants. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm sure that, that that will happen when the borders are opened up, which I think, you know, if anything's illegal and what's happening at the moment, I think what we're doing with the borders is, um, and uh, I'm not a big fan of uh, Clive Palmer's, but I've got my fingers crossed uh, for his action against the West Australian government. Uh, and along with David, I'm uh, disgusted that the federal government actually pulled out of that action. Mm. Uh, Joel, I, I know of uh, quite a few people, um, uh, I know of real estate agents in Brisbane who do not have enough stock for demand from Victoria right now. They're selling houses as fast as they can uh, list them 
um, to Victorians? Uh, do you think <laughs> it's only the? Re- I mean, I think to even get out of the state, all you have to do is just even get a rental agreement. Uh, so the property markets um, outside Victoria may be being supported by Victorians largely at the moment. Do you think relocating is uh, the option to relocate is one of the strengths of competitive federalism? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we the, the chief example of this is looking at the US right now. There's 50 states there. It's a very big market and very competitive. And that, that forces states to do, you know, incredible sort of work or or we can see which states are doing terrible jobs. I mean, New York State, you literally had um, Governor Chris Cuomo. Was it Andrew Cuomo? Correct me if I'm wrong. I think Andrew Chris Cuomo. Governor. It was Andrew. Andrew, Andrew yeah. Cuomo, not Chris on CNN. Chris is um, the CNN Andrew, brother, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Andrew, he was literally begging people, don't leave the state. We need the rich people to stay for taxes. And so now they're going to have billions of dollars worth of a budget shortfall, so they have to cut a bunch of different services, um, which they really don't want to cut in social services. Um, where are people moving? Well, all over the place. I mean, California is a classic. There's a danger that it's going to flip Texas blue with the amount of people moving to Texas because of the low taxes in Texas. I mean, we wow. even saw the most we even saw the most popular podcast in the world, Joe Rogan, that gets billions of downloads every year. He um, moved his uh, studio to Texas because mm. things are so terrible in California. I mean, they repealed this American Civil Rights Act. I actually Act retweeted in, in a, California. Uh, I, I retweeted a um, tweet from the California governor this morning uh, where he yeah. was asking everybody to turn off their air conditioners in the middle of a heat wave at 3.30 in the afternoon. Um, it's just like, well, guys, we've it's gone too just, green. Can you stop using electricity, please? It's just a disaster. My mum was over there and she was talking about how great California was and I was like, which part were you in? Because there's literally, <laughs> there's literally apps. You can download apps on your phone which will tell you where the poop hotspots are because the, 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 the housing, the housing crisis disgusting. over there, the homeless crisis is insane. There are syringes yeah. everywhere. Police aren't. There are laws which don't allow police to move people on. There are yep. businesses that are leaving. Um, on top of that, California repealed the American Civil Rights Act, so that means you can discriminate based on skin color and and gender and all of that. That's that's insane. That's insane. It's a very libertarian so, of them. Yeah, it's very. It is very free market. <laughs> and so, um, California, look, the um, only state in the uh, union where the dogs clean up their owners' poop on the sidewalk. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And look, now now we're seeing states that didn't lock down in the US. There are some Republican-run states they never locked down, mm. and they've seen net increases in their you know net net output. But look, yeah. I did want to I did want to touch on the constitutional crisis of this um, of someone from the mon- monarchy sort of stepping in. I mean, you did cite the. Uh, um, the, the, the reference in Australian politics where we did have a government dismissed and the push the, the push for a Republican, for, for a Republic at that time was at a record high. I don't think we've, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we've seen anything like that since then. Now, people did not like that at all. We saw a very similar case in the UK recently. Last year, they had um, a situation where they, the, the parliament was at a gridlock in negotiating Brexit. This is mid last year. And there were calls for people to get the Queen to, or encouraging the Queen as much as they could through the media, to possibly dissolve Parliament and completely start fresh because they were just Mm. at at a deadlock. But you know what? She stayed out of it. She did what she always does, which is the lovely thing, and and just sort of lets them work things out because she's seen a few years, hasn't she? And 
Yeah. What did we see? We saw an, a landslide, a, a once in a hundred year sort of landslide. There are, you know, labor seats for a hundred years. They'd never gone conservative and they got massively defeated. In fact, it was an 80 seat majority for the conservatives, which is huge. That's mm. massive. And so look, I, I, I guess I, I agree with Graham on this. I think you've got to let the market play it out. Victoria, you know, as individuals, they can move out. If they want to change it, if they want to go down with the ship, if they want to do whatever they want, it's a country, they can do whatever they want. And I think, yep. you know, Western Australia, if we're going to be fair, Western Australia is in a similar case. Professor Flint, in a competitive federation uh, where states start to, um, I guess, sediment with uh, layers of, of uh, political philosophies attracted to different states, we see it markedly um, in America, so much so that it even goes down to the, the level of, of cities being particularly democratic or republican. Um, if Victoria continues to become more and more left-wing, leftist, radical, green, socialist, uh, is it a good thing if conservatives leave the state for Queensland or, or South Australia, New South Wales, and, and some of the other more leftist people who are looking for a more leftist government end up in, in Victoria and, and thus creating bigger differences. Will that lead to um, a, a, bigger, uh, a bigger percentage of people who are happy with their government of, of whatever type it may be? And how mobile is a population generally to be able to take advantage of those kind of, of differentiations? You know, it's not that long ago that California was a Republican state, not a Reagan state. Uh, these things change, people change their views. I, I don't think these things are necessarily locked into one position or the other. Queensland was thought of once as a very conservative uh, state. You didn't get, often get, if you've got Labour governments, they tend to be conservative. I don't think people stay as they are. There's a complaint. I gather in Texas that the sort of people who are coming in to get the advantages of living in such a liberal, a small little liberal state with low taxes, they're coming in and they're they're changing the voting. They're they're tending to vote Democrat and changing what uh, Texas. I don't think you can lock these things in. But what I do think we should be looking at, and we've had this terrible long period right back to 1920 of over-centralizing Australia. What we should be looking at, I think, is increasing the, the, the amount of direct democracy in the country. Uh, one of our problems is that our political parties are highly centralized. They've got more centralized and they've taken away a lot of the powers of the members of the parties. They're, they're quite often, particularly in New South Wales, run by cabals who don't have much to do with the membership of the party. That applies on both sides. And I think that there is a good argument for increasing the amount of direct democracy in Australia, as you find in, for example, the classic cases in Switzerland. We, at the time of Federation, we decided to take from the Swiss the referendum, but the whole initiation of the process always lies with Canberra. So every referendum in Australia has to be increased, mean to increase Commonwealth powers, not to decrease them. 
I think if we had more direct democracy, we could rely more on the good sense of the ordinary Australians. And I think that a lot of Australians have more common sense than a lot of the politicians, particularly those in small business, those in farms. They're, they're quite often more sensible. They, they come to more sensible decisions. The, the, pol the political parties seem to be obsessed with curious dogma at the moment, global warming and gender fluidization or whatever it's called, uh, all sorts of fashionable ideas which seem to come in from the United States. And I think if we, for example, did look seriously at recall elections, not that they'd be used often, but they would be something hanging over the head of a man like Andrews or a government like his. We, we've, a number of American states do have recall elections. We were going to... Let me interrupt you there and, and ask you to explain what a recall election is. Assume I know absolutely nothing, have never heard of the term before, don't know what it looks like, where else it works in the world and, and what might work in Australia. What is a recall election? In the simplest example, it would be a, an electoral provision or a constitutional provision which provides that if a certain percentage, and it could be as low as 12% as it is in uh, California, if 12% of the electorate signed a petition calling for an election within a particular electorate or the whole government, because it can apply to a governor in the United States, if if such a petition were signed, a new election would be called. And this became an issue in New South Wales when Barry O'Farrell was the leader of the opposition and the then Labour government was increasingly unpopular. And Barry O'Farrell decided to take it on board and he promised that if the Liberals were elected to government, he would set up a committee an expert committee to examine that. Well, they, they didn't appoint the committee as carefully as they might because the committee, to their surprise, came down with a majority decision in favour of introducing <laughs> recall elections in New South Wales. And I remember a friend of mine asked the Attorney General at the time, he said, well, you've got, you said you'd, dis, you'd look at it, you've got a favourable decision, why aren't you introducing it? He said, well, the, the facts are different now. The Liberal Party's in government, so why would we introduce recall elections? So we didn't get it in New South Wales if it was promised. Now, that's, that's a wonderful thing for a government to have in its mind, to know that if it misbehaves, as clearly the Victorian government is, a sufficient number of people might sign a petition, 12%, 20%, 40%, whatever it is, and it's not something which happens all the time, even in those states that have them. Because it's hard. You've got to get people to come out and openly sign a petition and have their addresses verified and so on. Uh, but it does happen, and it can happen, and it can lead to a change of government. Last time in one American state, it led to an increased majority for the governor. But it's a very democratic thing to do. So I'm interested in, in the mechanics of, of that. Would the Electoral Commission of the state or Commonwealth administrate that? Is it just a, a slip of paper that any private citizen can pass around until there's, you know, 
a million signatures on it uh, or could it be done securely digitally? I, I guess it would be up to the framers of the legislation, but uh, what are your thoughts in particular? Well, I think in, in, our, in our case, it would have to be done, would have to be kept at the Electoral Commission. We, we don't have, I think that the Americans have an advantage they didn't centralise the running of the electoral system to the degree we have. And you do see odd things happening in America. In some states, you do see a degree of fraud. But what we did was we made the mistake, I think, of centralising it, federal at least. And that means if, if the system goes bad, as it did under Hawke, where the system was weakened and we, we've, we've introduced the potential for significant amounts of fraud in the Australian system, it would be done by the... Australian electoral system. I'm not saying the electoral system is corrupt, but the system is such, and it's not so much multiple voting, that, that, that is a problem. Obviously, there should be some control. If you're let, letting people, before Hawke, you could vote anywhere. You, you had to vote in the subdivision that you were directed to, to vote in. You could apply for an absentee vote, but uh, that's where you had to basically uh, cast your vote. Now, I can vote in about 40 different places. So if I weren't known, I could vote 40 times. And the, the role is, it is obvious that there are interests that want to keep our system corrupt because the role should be linked electronically so that when your name is crossed off where you vote, it should be crossed off right throughout the Commonwealth and in any overseas place, so you can't vote again. Mm -hmm. At least there'll be a question if you try to vote again, if there isn't proper identification. But the big leakage in our system is it's so easy to enroll. And uh, Howard tried to stop that. Howard tried to stop it by legislating that the roll would close on the day the election was called. So when, when uh, when that had been in place for a few terms, uh, uh, GetUp organised a couple of people to petition the High Court. One hadn't bothered to register. Everybody knew an election was coming. One didn't bother to register. The other didn't bother to correct his change of address. They went to the High Court. The High Court did somersaults, which they're not doing at the moment in relation to the Section 92 case. They're doing everything to delay it. But in that case, they rushed through the decision so it could be heard before the 2010 election. Hmm. Uh, and they handed down their decision without giving their reasons. They waited to give their reasons till Christmas, which is about four months, five months away. And they dropped it in just before Christmas. Nobody noticed what their reasons were. They gave their decision. And they found that there was something in the Constitution that said you couldn't close the rolls at the time when the election was called. I think you could turn the Constitution inside out and you can't find any clear provision as to why that should happen. So we have the situation in Australia where the rolls stay open for a week. And during that week, there's a massive amount of fraudulent registrations, particularly in marginal seats. Mm. And that, that happened in 2010. GetUp boasted foolishly. They boasted as to, as to what they did as a result of that. They said, we've got 100,000 extra names onto the roll, which they did. 
And it meant that instead of the Gillard government de being defeated, you might recall, it was a hung parliament. Wow. Uh, Significant. Yes. Yeah, so uh, I, I think it's very important that we, we give the people of Australia, because I, I can't see who else we can rely on. You can't rely on the politicians. They're all deranged. They all think they can change the climate on the basis of <laughs> computer modelling. And they take every new idea coming from America and yep. spend days on it and have, for example, the plebiscite they had on same-sex marriage and so it, it, yep. it gets out of hand. So I, I, yep. think, I think there is a solid, there's still in Australia, a solid sound group of people with common sense who will do things, who will control the politicians. You need two significant controls, I think. Firstly, recall elections as a sort of guillotine hanging over the heads of the politicians. But secondly, you need the right for people to initiate referendums on all manner of things, treaties, for example, on legislation, on introducing new legislation. We should give carte blanche to the people, as they have in Switzerland, and they do it very well. And I think this would vastly improve and control the politicians. The politicians are completely unaccountable. And yep. they go to elections, most of which are confected, because the, the pre-selections are pre-arranged, at least in this state they are. It's not the normal, the ordinary members of the Liberal Party. They, in, in vast parts of New South Wales, they won't let you into the party because the person who's, who's yes. got the seat there stops people getting into that party. Yes, that, that, we, we that, certainly, um, that, that certainly does go on. Um, I, I want to uh, encourage everybody you are going to get the opportunity to hear a lot more of Professor David Flint and his his deep knowledge of Australian and world political history, uh, as well as the strategies and tools that uh, we may have at our disposal uh, in a show that he's now producing on the Good Source website every Thursday called Take Back Your Country. Uh, so I want to encourage you to look for that uh, on Thursdays at goodsource.news. Also, if you would... Uh, like to be involved in supporting the production of The Good Source, uh, there's a supporters page on that channel there. And very soon, we're going to be launching a members section, which will have bonus content that won't be broadcast and will be the, the extended interviews, uh, etc., that are going on. So to help fight fake news, head to goodsource.news and uh, become a supporter there for a low or generous monthly amount. And... Uh, Certainly in these hard economic times, everything is generous and, and that's very much appreciated. Uh, Graham Young, I'm actually struck by and quite enamoured by the idea of recall elections, um, especially in your and my home state of Queensland, where we have no upper house, uh, no legislative council to hold the government to account. We have four-year elected dictatorships. And it seems to me that the threat and the possibility of a recall election would be very, very good at moderating the enthusiasm of uh, runaway hubris uh, that we've seen so often uh, from the 25 years of, of recent Labor government uh, here in this state. But across the nation, um, Victoria is the current um, uh, dictatorship that we would like a democratic solution to. Uh, what do you think about recall elections? Are they a good idea? And how do you think they would best work in Australian contexts? 
Um, well, until you, you approached me about this session, I hadn't really thought too hard about recall elections. I can't actually think of too many instances in Australian history where one would have been successful or, um, or justified. But I'd like to take up what David was talking about more, which was citizen-initiated referenda. Uh, which is something that our think tank supports as an idea, that if you can get a certain threshold number of uh, people supporting um, a proposition, then it should be able to be, be put to the people. Um, you make a, a very good point about an upper house. Uh, we don't have a policy on an upper house here. I don't think uh, you're going to get any uh, parliamentary party in Queensland to reinstate one. Um, and... When you look at uh, some of the upper houses interstate, um, perhaps that's a good thing because they don't fulfil the function that they ought to fulfil. Uh, but something like a citizen-initiated referenda, which would I would think be easier to get up and to also make changes to government policy, I think that would be a really good thing. You know, I remember Proposition 13, I think it was, in California back in the uh, late 70s, which kicked off the tax revolt around the world, um, which uh, led to Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and uh, um, Bob Hawke, Paul Keating, to a lesser extent, Malcolm Fraser, but then John Howard. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the steering but not rowing philosophy of government, not spending any more money than the government needs to, uh, doing things regarding the government as a trustee of money which isn't actually theirs, uh, it belongs to the people. Those sorts of ideas came out of that referendum. Um, they have a lot of these referendums in um, in the US. They add um, propositions to ballot papers and people vote on them. Um, so, you know, I think that's likely to be more useful, likely to be more practical um, and um, likely to have greater effect. Joel, what are your thoughts on, uh, on recall elections? Um, for it, against it, uh, any details you'd like to see implemented? How would it how would it look like? Um, yeah. And are you aware of any parties out there with a good policy regarding this, which uh, could be considered uh, and supported by um, potential voters? Yeah, no, look, absolutely. I'm in complete agreement with Graham and the professor on that. I I I, de I definitely think recall elections should definitely be instituted. I mean, the and also the referenda that the US sort of have every time they go for an election is an excellent idea. They should put four or five different things to it to the electorate. Do you agree on this? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. That's uh, The more democracy, the better. Now, I had the um, Solicitor General for New South Wales in studio last week, and he often made the point a government overreach is just you've got to reconcile. There's, there's, a, there's a reckoning that will come for it eventually. And I think the best, we need to get ahead of that. We really need to make sure we do this as soon as possible because it, the longer we leave it, the more pent up people's anger will get and the more people will see jumping on the streets and really expressing their anger. Now, I did also have last week, I dedicated a whole episode of The Ark, which is the other show I host um, with Ricardo Bosi, who's the leader of the A1 political party. We dedicated the whole thing pretty much to to uh, electoral fraud. Now, Ricardo referenced a electorate, a swing electorate in Queensland, where there's the odd numbers on one side and the odd numbers on the other side, which were which was a beach. Yet there were registered voters where the beach was, which is insane. 
absolutely insane. And it's it's stories like what the professor is talking about that just it, it's very disillusioning about the electoral system. I'm very concerned about. I mean, if we if we can't, what's the point in starting a new party if you can't tackle those problems already? Mm. I mean, how do we know if there's going to be a free and fair election? In fact, I made the point in my recent article for The Good Source, which was an exclusive, that there's a very good chance that the US election, we may not have a result ever mm. for the US election coming up. In fact, we might even end up with President Nancy Pelosi on January 20th next year because of mail-in voting, universal mail-in voting, not absentee mail-in voting. That's a big problem. And we're going to see, I mean, the 50 days of rioting at the White House is starting in a week or so, where they're basically they're calling it the 50-day siege of the White House. That's, that's how bad things can get. So we can definitely screw this up. And we need to be very careful. But you know what? Ricardo Bossi's party, A1, it goes a step further. They also introduce primaries, which is what we see in the US. How better to find the best candidate for your electorate than to have primaries within a party. So not it's not a constitutional thing. It's within the party. That's true leadership. Now, I like what a number of different parties are doing. I Would love you have to be a member of that party? Absolutely. To, to, to right. vote on the primary? Absolutely. Um, Isn't that a, what we already lot. have with pre-selections? How is that different? Well, if you think about it, how do you pick the the uh, with pre-selections in different parties? They've got different rules, but a lot of it isn't as democratic as you'd hope. In fact, that well, was the whole <laughs> exactly. See, it speaks for itself. See, I, I've seen the inner work in the Labor I've, Party. The unions get half the half the say. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but I, I've done a lot of time in the Christian Democrat Party, and I helped Fred Nile reform his party very well. And we tried to reform a bunch of these different things and there was a lot of different nepotism that we saw. There was a bunch of different corrupt sort of inner workings that we saw on a board and we cleared out the whole board, reduced the average age of the board down 30 years, which is amazing. And look, the, I've, I've seen a lot of these changes that need to take place and it can be done. Now, we've got a bunch of different parties which look very promising. I mean, One Nation is doing a pretty good job. Their constitution needs one hell of a uh, one hell of a work. I mean, I don't like the dictator uh, sort of uh, um, as much as I like Pauline Hanson. I don't like how much she's sort of overlooks the whole situation and has the final say. But what I see in Australia one is really promising, and I, I wish them all the best in going forward with this. And I hope that other, I hope that because they do that, it cre it raises the bar for all other parties, and they have to follow that as well. A few bold ideas there, Graham. Um, I, I do want to start working towards the end of, of this episode of, of Pello Talk. Uh, but what are your thoughts on the idea of primaries um, for political parties? Um, yeah, well, as you, um, you're possibly familiar with the LNP up here, and uh, they have a plebiscite system, uh, which is a bit like a primary. Um, I, I don't actually have a problem with the idea of a primary anyway. So in the US, uh, you don't have to be a member. You don't even have to be a registered Republican or Democrat voter. Um, one of the problems that I think we've got in party politics, um, and primaries don't solve all of this, but they solve part of this, is that they're run more and more like clubs or even businesses. Um, so you have to conform to the dictates of the people who are running it and they're mm. hard because you know they only let people in who are on side um 
which has been used against, uh, I think it's been weaponised against conservatives across the majors, uh, both parties being dragged uh, leftwards. Uh, and, and look, I, I've written on this um, recently article, um, and, and you've published it in, in your journal, Online Opinion, um, you know, would, would Howard's broad church invite in Karl Marx? You know, the concept is, is that uh, let's bring the debate into the tent. Um, and yet what we're actually seeing is conservatives being excluded from the, the party, which is meant to include libertarians and conservatives, which is the way Howard defined his broad tent. Well, I think, um, I think Howard defined it similarly to, to the way Menzies would have, which was right. you had conservatives and you had free traders uh, and it was those two groups being part of the Royal Church, not just anyone that wanted to be yeah. part of the Liberal Party. I mean, Malcolm Fraser had um, a very bad experience. He set up the Australian Conservation Foundation. I don't know how many people recall that. Um, but it got effectively stacked out against him. It started off as a centre <laughs> right or at least middle of the road organisation, but it very quickly moved to the left. Um, you know, I disagree that the, the Liberal Party's moved that far to the left. I think we we moved in a more libertarian direction uh, through the late 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And what I'm seeing is something which is not dissimilar to the kind of Liberal Party that I joined back in the 70s. So, you know, I, I joined the, the party in 1977, what's that, 43 years ago. Um, and... There, there was a lot of people who were just there for social reasons, didn't really understand the philosophy that strongly. Uh, and then it was the battle between the wets and the dries and the bad economic circumstances, partly uh, created by Gough Whitlam, that moved the party in the direction of rational economics, um, not necessarily less conservative, but, but certainly more economically rational and, and less interested in protection. Um, so it's kind of moved away from that, I think, because, you know, political parties and human beings respond to stimuli and mm -hmm. the stimulus hasn't been there. You know, we've had it so good. I think a lot of the problems we've got in society at the moment are the problems of plenty, the problems of wealth. You know, it's that well-known cycle uh, they mm -hmm. say about families from rags to rags in three generations. first generation makes it, the second generation builds it, the third generation just takes it for granted and hands it away. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, in some respects, our political party, certainly the, the Liberal Party, is in that kind of position. Yeah. Uh, they need a bit of bad luck to, to reform. Um, and you can't create bad luck. It comes along and you don't want to create bad luck. Yeah. I, um, I, I do push back on, on the notion. We won't spend a lot of time in this. I'll, I'll just... Uh, invite myself to have the last word if you'll permit my indulgence. Um, <laughs> but that, that, <laughs> thank you. That the Liberal Party is is not gone that far left. I think is effortlessly refuted by Pine's article, uh, wishing for President Biden over President Trump. Um, and uh, and I think that I mean there's plenty more examples. That's not not an isolated example. But the the idea that somebody like him, who's uh, very much a left of centre um, politician, is probably neither uh, somebody who should have been in Howard's government, uh, and certainly wouldn't have been in Menzies. Um, 
and um, John Gorton, Noreen McPhee. Well, you know, for for a Liberal Party Prime Minister to march against extant marriage laws uh, in a political leftist protest, I, I think, is uh, a reflection on the temperature of, of the Liberal Party. Don't forget, we're pretty sure Menzies didn't vote Liberal a few times after his seat being Prime Minister. And uh, that's, also, that's a testament to how disappointed he was with the hijacking of some of the concepts that he espoused uh, not, not, and, and you're right. Yeah, he he didn't. Um, but I, I do want to um, bring Professor Flint in to to wrap up the the conversation um, with this, especially, I guess, rearticulating and reasserting a concise case for uh, the innovation of recall elections in state and Commonwealth uh, constitutions, uh, and then we'll whip around for uh, a wrap-up from everybody again. Actually, let's um, let's do that now. So, Graham, you get the final word on our on our little uh, retorts there, um, and then Joel, and we'll wrap up with uh, David pre presenting the case for recall elections again. Um, well, Feel free to uh, say anything you want on any topic, including my uh, assertions. No, well, that was only a minor part of what we're talking about. I, I think sure. the people of Victoria have got to deal with um, Daniel Andrews, and some of us have got our own problems with our own premiers. Um, so, um, but, you know, I don't think you can, you can, um, you can um, hasten the, the path of democracy. It takes people sometimes a long time to recognise they've made a mistake. Well said. And, and the hardest or rather the silliest thing to do is to try and persuade them they've made a mistake before they've been led to that conclusion themselves. Mm. Um, but I think things like recall elections and, and citizen-initiated referenda uh, are things that ought to be looked at very seriously and, and adopted. Uh, we need more timely citizen uh, involvement in elections. And mm. we live in a time now where things happen much faster than they did. You know, the reason we've got a problem with this virus to a certain extent is we live in a very mobile world. The reason we've got a problem with some of the ideas we've got a problem with is that that mobility extends to the internet and, and how we communicate. Um, I think that means that you probably do need uh, more regular uh, input from the populace to keep the, the ship of state uh, sailing in the right direction. Otherwise, um, to um, uh, borrow from the young lady who uh, resigned from the New York Times, uh, where she said, uh, it's not on the masthead, but uh, Twitter appears to be the editor of this paper. We'll mm. end up finding out that Twitter isn't elected to any parliament in, in Australia and uh, doesn't sit in any government house, but it ends up ruling the rest. Yeah. I, I do echo your sentiments on uh, letting people realise that they've made a mistake. I, I think the uh, on in that spirit, I, I opposed the changes to the, um, the ballot preferential voting system. I, I thought the 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 aberrations of some of the micro parties ascendancies such as Ricky Muir from the Motoring Enthusiasts Party and and the Clive Palmer experiment uh, were things that would be self evident correcting lessons and 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 indeed they they were but I think that would have been possible with without changing um, all those things uh, mm. unnecessarily I, I did like the way it was before but anyway Joel your final thoughts for this evening. Yeah, look, I think Senator, a Liberal Senator for New South Wales, Conchetta Furivanti-Wells, said it best 
Australia would be a lot better if every seat was a marginal seat. That says a lot. I think that people in Australia need to recognise that you can lose this. Free democracy is a blip in history. We can lose it due to big tech, due to government, due to anything. So what you need to do, the solution to that, is we need to be a little bit more like the Americans, not violent, but more active. We need to treat this not like a religion, but like our life, to, our life and our family's lives depend on it. Because mm -hmm. these these issues, if you, you know, Jordan Peterson has a new rule in his book, in, in his upcoming book. Not many people have heard it. He told me personally. He said, where responsibility has been abdicated, opportunity lurks. You want to be the one seizing that opportunity because you can be mm. damn well sure the wrong kinds of people will be seizing that opportunity. And look, I guess I'd leave that thought with people, you know, get active, whether that be protesting like what we sort of did to Scott Morrison this week where we prodded him and said, speak up. There are people that, that have concerns here and he spoke up, mm. which was excellent. Mm. Whether, whether it be writing to your local MPs saying, hey, 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 I go to this church, everyone will be hearing about this if you vote this way. It's about being active, writing petitions and doing all of that. It sounds boring. I would rather be doing other things on Saturday. I'd rather be chasing girls and I'd rather be playing video games. But the reality is if you don't, where, where responsibilities have been abdicated, opportunity lurks. Be there. Well, nice little uh, truism. Um, Professor Flint, um, take back your country. Great show coming up. Um, amongst other things you're advocating for is the the advent of uh, recall elections. Uh, just summarise those again for us as we uh, wrap up the show. Yes, well, you may all recall that a few years ago we were told by the politicians and by the newspaper editors that if we voted in favour of extending three-year terms to four-year terms, this would significantly include the quality of government. I think the first government elected in New South Wales was one of our worst governments. It doesn't improve the quality. What will improve the quality is doing what we did, what the people of Australia did to form this country. And you won't recall this because you're all too young. <laughs> I don't recall it. I've read about it. But what happened in the 19th century was when they attempted to federate, when people realised it was time to form one country. When the politicians appointed a convention and the convention reported back to the colonial parliaments, they could never agree with one another. We would never have federated had we left it to the politicians. We'd be five or six countries now. We wouldn't be a single country. And the way it was solved was by handing the question over to the people, by having the people elect a convention providing that the convention's conclusions after consultation would be put straight to the people it wouldn't go through the parliaments and we really Brilliant. need we really need this strong ingredient of direct democracy we need a second corridor plan we we federated through the corridor plan which school children would not have learnt of because they've got so much other junk cluttered into mm, their curriculum I've, i'm going to look i'm going to look that up well if we had the if we had another corridor plan, I think the Australian people would find a solution to significantly improve the governance of Australia. Brilliant. Thank you very much, everyone, for your participation this evening. Thank you for your comments. Uh, trust you've enjoyed the show. Uh, and uh, let me encourage you again to visit goodsource.news. That's good, S-A-U-C-E. 
news and uh, become a subscriber to our intermittent newsletter there where we will send you some of our hottest articles uh, and show episodes uh, to your email box. You never know when conservative media is going to be kicked off corporate media like Facebook and Twitter. So uh, make sure we've got your contact details and keep you informed there. And, of course, we would love to uh, count you as one of our supporters uh, with extended uh, interviews and behind-the-scenes access uh, to the various shows. A new show is produced every day, including uh, Take Back Your Country by Professor Flint and this show every Tuesday. Uh, and Professor Flint's show is on Thursdays. Thank you again to the uh, panellists for joining me today. And uh, that's it for this episode of Pello Talk, and we will see you next week. <laughs>